When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place. Except you and me So set em up, Joe I got a little story I think you should know We're drinking, my friend To the end of a brief episode Make it one for my baby And one more for the road Is there any more apropos song to begin a segment that deals at least in part with someone whose fame stems from his career as a bartender, at least part of his fame. Uh, this song, by the way, uh, of course, a classic Frank Sinatra hit, uh, One for My Baby and uh, One for the Road, was a birthday bumper music selection of my father, Carmine Morano. And uh, my son is Carmine William Morano. My father is Carmine Anthony Morano. So happy birthday to my dad. And uh, he's not listening now. He sleeps at this time. But uh, maybe I'll, I'll say a word or two about him a bit later. I will say this. Uh, of all the songs that he could have selected, he picked this one. And I would mention his age. He doesn't care about mentioning his age. But he hasn't aged in the last 30 years. So it's a little, it's a little embarrassing to me, anyway, that I'm aging so rapidly. I have all this gray hair, and he still doesn't have any. Hey, speaking of aging, uh, not necessarily rapidly, but certainly gracefully, that certainly can be said of uh, Malachi McCourt. And there was an absolutely brilliant profile of uh, Malachi McCourt in the New York Times this past weekend. The person that wrote it is Lori Gwen Shapiro. She is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, a journalist, an author. Her latest book is The Stowaway, A Young Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica. Lori, it's great to see you. Thanks for getting up early for us. Oh, sure. I'm very excited to do this. Uh, and I am I'm, I'm uh, had a special cup of coffee to so I'm perky. Wonderful. That's great. <laughs> now, are you going to are you going to go try and go back to sleep after this, or are you going to stay up? We'll see. Okay. See, that, that's what's tricky with having the cup of coffee, having been in that position recently. All right. I want to talk to you about this Maliki profile, but I want to ask you about a little of the uh, some of the other work that you did. Sure. As I uh, I became an instant fan of yours over the course of the last four days, and um, there was a wonderful piece that I discovered. It's over a year old about uh, a mystery involving Amelia Earhart and. A helmet 
that has been missing for uh, a number of years. An Amelia Earhart mystery that was solved. You told this story. First of all, I hadn't heard this story before, but you told it so well in your article for the New York Times. Give us the Reader's Digest version of the mystery of Amelia Earhart's lost aviator helmet. Oh, sure. And that actually has a wonderful uh, ending on top of an ending. So uh, just by way of background, I'm actually... Uh, writing a book about Amelia Earhart that's coming out next year. So it's the first big book on Amelia in about 20 years. So I was already a bit of an expert. I'm in the final edits. And um, uh, a story came across my radar, you know, because I'm on the Amelia beat, so to speak, about a helmet that had been put up for auction by Heritage Auctions out in Dallas. And many of you have heard of Sotheby's and Christie's, but the largest auction house in America is actually Heritage, and they do a lot of collectibles. They do um, many of their biggest um, collectibles are sports items, jerseys that have been worn by you know, favorite players, that kind of thing. And a gentleman had gone to the, to, uh, the, the original... Um, uh, uh, Christie's like places and sort of been laughed out when he said that his his mother had told me uh, that I got this helmet uh, when Amelia Earhart uh, touched down in Cleveland and you know people just just laughed him off and then he actually went to an antiques roadshow expert who also laughed him I mean who has Amelia Earhart's helmet. And what has happened is that there's a new technology where people, they use it for the sports jerseys where they can photo match. So, you know, if you have a picture of um, someone, you know, uh, taking a hoop and then you have a jersey and you can match it, like a rip or a stain, that actually is a legitimate uh, source of um, auction, uh, you know, qualification. And this gentleman decided, you know what, to heck with uh, Christie's and Sotheby's, I'm going to Heritage. And they had the top photo matcher in the world figure out that this actually was a helmet. What happened was she was in an air derby. So this is not a helmet from Amelia Earhart when she disappeared in uh, 1937, but this was what she, when I say helmet, by the way, I'm talking about a soft leather mm-hmm. thing that goes over your head, not like a, a football helmet. Sure. That's what they call it. Yeah, it looks like kind of a, a pre-1920 football helmet. Right, but, right. <laughs> but this is what the, the aviators, these are open planes. And so when she, she, Amelia Earhart first got on the American radar in 1928 when she was going across the Atlantic as a passenger, the person who had gone across solo in 1927 was Charles Lindbergh. And so she was, before she went across the Atlantic by herself in 1932, she went across as the, the first woman. And the first woman caused a sensation. Um, that is the helmet she was wearing a year later on what many people call the, uh, the Women's Air Derby. And it was going from Santa Monica to Cleveland. And these air races were the biggest things in the United States for the men and then now for the women. And there was a frenzy. It was like having the Beatles land when they finally, the women started to land in Cleveland. And people started to race the field. And she dropped her helmet. And she also dropped um, goggles that are in the Smithsonian. So there is another item. 
And it turns out that this gentleman's um, mother's, uh, uh, there was a boy who knew that she loved Amelia Earhart. You know, she'd already become famous for a year. And he rushed and got the item and gave it to her. And she put it in a box. Wow. <laughs> and this whole thing, and I'm, a, you know, I'm, I, you know I, I, I teach journalism as well as write journalism. I'm very big on fact-checking. The whole thing uh checked out. And so Heritage didn't really know. There's no items like this that have been put up before. So they put it up for about maybe 80000 and they thought, oh, that will be a pretty fun item. Well, after I wrote my article, a number of people, it went, it went absolutely viral, it got picked up in the London Times and all over the world. And when the auction day came, it just started going up and up and up and up. And suddenly it went over $800,000. Uh, and this man in Minnesota who had been sort of mocked by his friends and his family suddenly had the craziest payday. And it was, a lot of it was because of the power of a newspaper like the New York Times giving coverage. And, and that's what's happened with Malachi, too. I mean, everywhere, a lot of New Yorkers know Malachi. We love him. We see him you know, in, connected to St. Patrick's in, uh, Day week in particular, like this week. But a lot of people have forgotten that he's still here. And the McCourts, as you probably know since you've had Malachi on your show, have had pretty worldwide fame, especially around 1997 and 98 when Frank McCourt, his brother, wrote Angela's Ashes sure. and then won the Pulitzer Prize. And a lot of people forgot that Malachi is still here. But what happened with him is a lot – you know, he's a very – uh, you know, he loves posting on social media, particularly on Facebook, and he posted that he was dying in back in um, the summer. And I was just, I mean, the beginning of my piece, it was like a, a punch to the gut. And um, for not just for me, but for any of his friends, I know that you mentioned that you, you've been friendly with him. And we just like, oh, no, this era of New York of, like, the Jimmy Breslin, right. the Pete Hamill, that's coming to an end. So I, I do want to uh, get back to Malky in a, a second. But just, sure. just to close the uh, the chapter on Amelia Earhart. Sure. Um, uh, do you, since you've studied her, and I hope to have you back on when your book comes out. Do sure. you Do you have a theory on her disappearance as to what happened? There have been so many different things that we've heard over the years. What's your take on your research? Well, I have to be careful because I want everyone to to buy my book when it comes out. <laughs> but I will say that I think that um, I I think that if you look at what what the way that the story was covered uh, in the 1930s um, when she disappeared, this is before World War II. Um, it, there wasn't as much of a mystery there, and when we entered World War II, um, it became more of a mystery because her disappearance became more useful. And I think the story that I'm trying to write is not so much about how she died, which, I mean, I mean, I think I, I have my own thoughts, uh, which a lot of people, you know, have their own thoughts. But most people, 
that that follow the story believe that she ran out of gas. I'm mm-hmm. not saying anything astounding there. But I think what's fascinating is when you ask people about Amelia Earhart, they don't really know who she was as a person. They they have an iconic version of her. They don't know, like, you know, I'm, I'm actually writing my story is really about her marriage. A lot of people have no idea who she was, uh, that she was even married, uh, and really who, what she did. But I do have a lot of that that day that she disappeared and then what happened afterward. But I think what's so fascinating to me is just how much attention she's still getting. Absolutely. I mean, she disappeared in 1937 and I'm an, I'm a native New Yorker, as you could probably tell from my voice. And I, I mean, no matter, sometimes I take a taxi, sometimes I take a subway or an Uber. Everyone knows Amelia Earhart. That's for sure. Uh, that's for sure. All right. Uh, now, you mentioned Malachi McCourt's announcement that he was dying. Uh, he and I spoke back in September, and I asked him what his favorite thing about dying was, and he answered as only Malachi can. If you had to pick, what is the best thing about dying? Well, the, the fact is that you know you are. And the fact is that, for example, now here, you said dying, which most Americans avoid saying. Um, it's always passed away, left us, no longer with us, gone to heaven with the Lord, bought the farm, and every uh, euphemism you can imagine except he's dead or he's dying, you know. So don't avoid it. We can't. We're all mortal beings. And off we go, and that's the, and that is. Uh, I have a death date, which at the moment I'm not going to keep, because it's supposed to be uh, November ninth. So, but if I do die on that day, can I be on the show on the tenth, please? <laughs> um, Laurie, um, so you mentioned seeing the announcement from Malachi on social media that he was dying. What spurred you to write this profile about him? Well, um, I had the great fortune of having um, Frank McCourt, Malachi McCourt's brother, as my high school English teacher at Stuyvesant High School. And I was you know, I knew uh, Frank when I was 15 years old, and I don't know if anyone knows the show that the two brothers did before Frank became famous with Angela's Ashes was called The Couple of Blaggards, and they it was a, I was too young to to see it at the Village Gate. You know, you, even it, the drinking age was 18, but I was still too young, um, and I, they brought it to our high school, and I met Malachi, and back then I didn't really know much about Malachi except that he was on Ryan's Hope which was the soap opera that came after General Hospital, which was the biggest thing in the country in the 80s. And um, I got to meet him, and he was it's so funny. Everybody, you know, Malachi was the celebrity. Frank was the brother, the teacher. Um, but I, I met them then, and then um, I stayed in touch with Frank. I wanted to be a writer. Um, you know, Stuyvesant was really more 
uh, teaching students how to be scientists and mathematicians, and I I wanted to be a writer, and that so he became my mentor. I stayed in touch with him, and then in the in the 1997, after he was retired, his book was number one in 40 countries. It sold millions of copies. He was a retired teacher. He had taught on Staten Island. He had taught in um, at Stuyvesant, and suddenly he won the Pulitzer Prize. And the presidents are coming out, and he's hanging out with Julia Roberts, and it was like crazy. I mean, I've never seen. You know, sometimes someone famous becomes famous in your lifetime, but Frank. McCourt, you know, he's the one. <laughs> and I, um, there was sort of this almost cottage industry that started to come up. I mean, anything to do with the McCourt would, would do well. Sure. But meanwhile, his, Malachi's son, Connor, who I, who I really didn't know, he was a year ahead of me in high school, but I didn't know him, had been doing um, uh, uh, these small, intimate documentaries. And his grandmother was Angela from Angela's Ashes. And he'd been doing this, and it just happened to correspond with when Frank's book took off. And he had made um, the first movie for $5,000. And I volunteered, you know, as through Frank had told me about it, and I volunteered to join up. And I got to know all of the McCourt clan. Um, there was not just Frank and Malky, but there was Mike, who was a bartender out in San Francisco, and Alfie, who uh, worked at Penn South and was like the head of maintenance there, and they were all wonderful. And the, the and Connor's film was so intimate and so connected with such access that HBO bought it. This five thousand dollar film. It was aired. It was a big hit. We got asked to do another film called the McCourts. That was called the McCourts of Limerick, and um, then we did another film called the McCourts of New York. And I even got to travel to Ireland with the McCourt family, which was amazing. And I got to go to India with them. Again, I was volunteering. I wasn't paying my own ticket, but I, I wasn't taking money from this. And I became very close. And my mother just became close to them, too. I mean, I was pretty young. And when my mother was dying, um, I, she just preferred to have, you know, I'm, I'm secular Jewish, but she wanted to have an Irish wake. Hmm. And Malachi took over the funeral service. So we have this connection. And I haven't really been involved with him professionally since the mid-'90s, but I wanted to give back. I mean, sometimes the idea hit me. I was reading a, a biography of P.T. Barnum, of all people, about how towards the end of his life, somebody from um, Hartford, where he was you know, living, from the papers there said, would you like to read your obituary before you die? And he said he would love it. <laughs> and I thought, well, what, what, why don't I give Maliki a chance to have, instead of having to, you know, have yeah. a obituary, why not have him celebrate his life? I mean, and at this time, this was this was in November, and I started to, I had contacted him, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just get him to talk. And I was racing it. I was trying to race it for the paper. Um, and then... The second shock came, and this is covered a little bit in my article, that he posted that on November 9th, um, he was kicked out of hospice. I mean, you don't get officially kicked out of hospice, but he no longer was eligible because he was getting better. I mean, he's not, he still, he still has everything wrong with him. I mean, he has uh, different forms of cancer and a, a, a condition called IBM. He said to me, which this got cut, I, I, 
I thought originally that was a poop, and <laughs> I realized it was like a, a, diff- a different condition altogether. And I and he, but but he he actually started to improve enough that we realized he was definitely going to be alive for this St. Patrick's Day. And so the Times article shifted to Malachi McCourt wants one last St. Patrick's Day. And, you know, he's he's not in fantastic shape, but he's he's out there. The old Malachi that many New Yorkers know and appreciate, he's the guy that says yes to things. He's the guy that goes on the radio shows. He goes to the parades. He supports other people in the Irish-American community in particular. I was very, I reached out to people like Liam Neeson, who immediately said he wanted to participate in my article. I mean, imagine that. I mean, we just had um, Jim Sheridan, who's been nominated for Oscars for My Left Foot, with Daniel Day-Lewis, he absolutely, they, everyone wanted to, to, be, uh, to give back as well. And that was what was so wonderful. And I've been around um, the mania that a McCourt documentary can cause, and I, I, I was not so surprised when my article became pretty viral this weekend because I just know how many, how many people um, love him and appreciate him. I mean, he's... He's been, as you played a, a song about bartending, but he came here in, you know, as in in the 1950s when he was 20. He was a Brooklyn boy. That's why he had American citizenship. They went back to Ireland when his sister died of crib death when he was three. But he always had that that um, American citizenship. And so Frank came back first um, from Limerick, back to to New York, and then he sent over money for Malachi to come, and Malachi arrived and um, almost immediately became a bartender at a time when, you know, people really drank. Oh, sure. <laughs> and, Especially and, him. And, and so he, he, one of the stories I love to talk about was how he actually, how do you go from just being an Irish bartender to getting sort of um, national uh, fame and the, what happened was um, many, may, maybe some of the people listening to the show remember that the Tonight Show had several hosts, not just um, you know who we have right. today, Jack Allen. But at that time, it was the second host. It was Jack Parr, and Malky had been out in Fire Island uh, for a summer share that he got for free at a bar, and um, there were several. Uh, uh, young writers for The Tonight Show out there, and he was telling his stories that we know and love him for now, and he had a crazy story about um, how he couldn't pay his bills, and he would stamp deceased (laughs) on all the bills. And one of the the writers said, you know, I think that Jack Parr would love that story. And, And he was looking for unknowns. He was looking for fresh voices. And sure enough, he goes on the show, and Malachi told me, and Malachi's been sober since 1985, but he told me he was drunk as a skunk when he went on the show. And yet, he was, he was still charming. I mean, imagine this, going on, on the air drunk. And he told that story, and it sparked this whole national trend of people <laughs> saying deceased that's, on their bills. That's incredible. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. Lori, uh, you got to come back, because I'd love to talk with you more about your book, sure. uh, The Stowaway. Uh, so maybe we can uh, continue this conversation in a week or two. And uh, I, it's really just such a treat to talk with you. I've become oh, a big wonderful. fan of your work in a short amount of time. Thanks. Thank you so
so much for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 